Shalom and welcome to the Jewish Mind, where the growth of modernity meets the timeless wisdom and solutions of Judaism. Are you single, looking to get married? Are you in a relationship that seems to be the perfect choice for life, but you are still not engaged to be married? Here is an unexpected question for you. Do you want to get married without even being engaged? After all, why just waste even more time with an engagement period before getting married? Just set a marriage date and get straight away married. Many people feel that the primary reason for delaying getting married is FOMO. FOMO is fear of missing out. Even when the boy and the girl say that they are certain about each other, that the other is the right one who they want to spend the rest of their life with, yet, nevertheless, they are procrastinating, pushing what they agree to be the inevitable off for a little longer. Why? Financial stability is a big excuse that I get to hear very often. However, I am not really sure that I understand it. The couple is living together, sharing the financial burden together, living already as what is a marital relationship on all levels, and yet it would be irresponsible to get married now before there is financial stability? I mean, if they were to say that they will get married but don't want to have children until they have financial stability, now that would be a different conversation. However, why would postponing a marriage because of financial stability make sense for two people who are already emotionally and financially unofficially married anyway? This lecture is going to explore the mystical concepts of Kiddushin, which is the Hebrew word for betrothal and engagement, and Nisuin, the Hebrew word for marriage in Judaism. What we learn from these mystical teachings is that the only way to get from single life into being married even if you already are in a long-term monogamous relationship, is to first leave single life into being engaged, betrothed. Amazingly enough, even though a monogamous relationship, when it is not only sexually monogamous, but also emotionally monogamous, seems to have all the ingredients of an engagement, minus the ring. Nevertheless, there is an infinite separation between betrothed and in being in a monogamous relationship. Thus, in this lecture, lecture, we will learn that the secret of how to get from a monogamous relationship to a marriage is through becoming engaged on a spiritual level. Before we explore the mystical concept of betrothal and marriage, we will need to first explore the chuppah ceremony as we experience it presently. After the bride empowers the groom by encircling him seven times, the chuppah ceremony begins. The Masada Kedushin, which is called the arranger of the betrothal, begins by announcing the two witnesses to the exclusion of anyone else who will witness and validate the betrothal process. The witnesses need to be two Shabbat-observant adult men who are not related to each other, to the groom, or to the bride. The Masada Kedushin then makes the blessing over a cup of wine for the groom and bride, followed by the blessing for performing the commandment of betrothing a woman to be one's wife. The Masada Kedushin makes this blessing for the groom even though the groom is doing the commandment. The reason is that the sages assume the groom is emotionally too preoccupied to be able to make the blessing with the proper intentions. After the blessings are made and the groom and bride drink from the wine, the groom performs the betrothal. This is done by the groom giving to the bride money or something of monetary value with which the bride could buy food of sustenance for herself. The custom has become to use specifically a round gold ring, a wedding band clean of any engravings or stones. 
The groom recites as he puts the ring on the bride's finger these words, Behold, thou art betrothed unto me with this ring in accordance with the law of Moses and Israel. There are legal and mystical reasons as to why we use a plain gold ring, which you can research if you wish. What is important for this lecture is that the couple are now betrothed and the woman is in the full legal status of a wife. The correct word is actually arusa, betrothed. However, the emphasis here is that all of the biblical prohibitions of having an affair and their consequences are in full. This is the complete process of the Kiddushim betrothal ceremony. In the days of old, after this, the bride will return to her parents' home and the groom to his yeshiva for the extended amount of time, varying from months to years, until the set date for the marriage. What the Arus betrothed man and the Arusa betrothed woman cannot do until after the marriage ceremony is to consummate their marriage. By the 12th century, this practice of having separate ceremonies had ended, and it became customary to do both Kiddushin and Nisuin successfully beneath the chuppah. One of the reasons for this change is the poverty that prevailed in the Jewish communities. People simply could not afford the expense of two celebrations. Let us return to our present chuppah ceremony. So, once the ring was put on, at this point, someone will be honored to read the ketubah, marital contract instituted by the sages. The reason for reading the ketubah is only in order to separate the two ceremonies, the kiddushin and the nisuyin. This is why most rabbis will deliver their words to the groom and bride at this point, at this time as well. The Nisuin mat process is, right, now let's move on to what that second part is, the marriage process. It's made up of two pieces. A, to make the seven blessings over a cup of wine. And B, for the groom to bring the bride into his home. As part of the wedding hall rental, the groom rents a room into which he brings the bride. The two witnesses stand outside the door to be able to testify that the groom and bride were alone in the groom's home, his rented room, for at least seven minutes. Just to clarify, from a legal point of view, nothing happens in that room other than their being there together. Usually, being that the groom and bride fast in prayer on the day of their wedding, this would be where and when they eat something to break their fast. Another thing that legally changes after the Nisuin marriage is that the obligation for the woman to have her hair covered. The actual law of a woman covering her hair begins after the groom and bride go home and consummate their marriage. This introduction is the briefest of explanations to the present-day chuppah ceremony. What we need from all of this is to understand that there are two separate ceremonies that constitutes a Jewish marriage. A. The Kiddushin, the betrothal and the engagement. And B. Nisuin, marriage. In simple practical terms, the Kiddushin stage makes the bride for, forbidden to any other man and the Nisuin stage makes her permissible to her husband. We will fully explore this. Another introduction for this lecture comes from King Solomon. King Solomon speaks of the marriage between the children of Israel and God and quotes God as saying in the Book of Songs, A locked-up garden is my sister, my bride, a locked-up spring, a sealed fountain. The Medrash on this verse states, Locked garden, this is the virgin. Locked spring, this is the non-virgin. In other words, 
the locked garden is referring to the betrothed woman, while the locked spring is referring to the second stage, the married woman. With these introductions, let us begin our lecture. Let us first focus on the first phrase concerning the locked garden, the Targum. That's uh, usually Rabbi Yonas and Ben Uziel who translated the Torah, explains the phrase as, and I quote to you, Just as the Garden of Eden is closed and none can enter other than the souls of the righteous, so too the children of Israel, they tie, they lock, their opening but to their husband, God. Now another commentary, the Metudas David, he explains the garden to refer to a regular physical garden and not specifically to God's Garden of Eden. And what it means is that the Jewish people are compared to a locked garden into which no one can enter but the owner of the garden. What they both agree is that King Solomon specifically focused on a garden, only that while one explains it to be God's Garden of Eden, the other sees it as a human's garden. So why a garden and not a home, field, or any other form of ownership of a person, place, or thing? Okay, let us first see what King Solomon is referring to when he says that we, Israel, are locked. What does it mean, locked? In some mystical teachings, the term locked is referring to our adherence to turn away from evil. King David in Psalm states, Turn away from evil and do good, seek peace and pursue it. When King Ta Solomon speaks of the betrothed woman as a locked garden, he is referring to the person locking him or herself away from all thoughts, speech, and actions prohibited by God. On a deeper level, not only is King Solomon speaking of forbidden thought, speech, and actions, but also of permissible thought, speech, and actions that are performed solely with egocentric intentions, void of any theocentric intentions. That's what we lock ourselves away from. However, the mystical teaching thickens and explain that the locked garden is not only speaking of our external expression of thought, speech, and action, but also of our internal experience of pleasure. In other words, what makes us betrothed to God is that we lock ourselves from experiencing any pleasure that is void of divinity. Let's get practical for a moment. The pleasure we have in choosing and shopping for specific styles of clothing is it just about looking good, attracting attention, and getting compliments? Or are we also mindful of how we, as Jewish people, are seen? Clean, proper, and classy, or the opposite. The food we eat, it is, only, is it only about tantalizing our taste buds? Or is it about the nutrition we need to order, we need in order to be of service to God and to our fellow? In other words, have we locked our garden of pleasure? our experience of pleasure, to not let in egocentric forms of pleasure that are void of us experiencing pleasure in belonging to God. Thus, we now understand why King Solomon is speaking specifically of a garden. For unlike a home or a field, a garden is specifically a place we stroll in for the sake of pleasure. Thus, the focus here is not whether we just lock our homes, fields, and offices of thought, speech, and action, but whether we also lock our gardens of pleasure and open them only for God. In our prayers we say, Sanctify us with your commandments and give us our portion in your Torah. The word sanctify in Hebrew is kachenu, which is the same wordage for betrothal, kiddushin. Concerning the betrothal, the word kiddushin denotes invited, that the woman is invited and set aside for this groom. 
through which she becomes forbidden to and separated from any other man. This is the spiritual effect of God's commandments, which, co which, which comes from an encompassing light, which affects the performer of the commandment to be separated from foreign pleasures and from bad attributes. Let's look at the second part. Give us our portion in your Torah. So there's the commandment observance and there's the Torah study. This is the first half, commandments observance, we just explained, is all about the kiddushin, the engagement. Now, what is the second part of the verse talking about? When we say, give us a portion of your Torah, Torah study speaks more of a consummation in which there is an internal transmission from God, our husband, to us, God's wife. Thus, we are now taking the concept of spiritual betrothal up a notch in which the locked garden happens through our performing God's commandments, which invites us to be engaged to God through separating us from any egocentric pleasures and bad attributes. This then leads us to becoming the locked spring, which is God giving us His Torah, which we internally digest, transforming our paradigm and reality as we become one to God. So there's the locked garden of pleasure through observing mitzvot, and then there's the locked spring, the Torah study, the transmission, the internal transmission from God into us, His wife. We, we now have a greater appreciation of the spiritual difference between of being betrothed to God and of being married to God. Let's see. A. Betrothal is receiving an external encompassing transmission while marriage is receiving an internal permeating relationship. Second thing, B, from the giver's point of view, God's point of view, the transmission of marriage is far greater than that of the betrothal, which is why the Torah is referred to as, so to speak, the semen of God being implanted within us. It is the portion of God that God gives us to become our portion of your Torah. However, one must become betrothed before they can become married. So even though we're saying marriage is, marriage is higher, it can't happen without first becoming betrothed. Thus, even in Egypt and later on the way to Mount Sinai in a place called Marah, God gave us commandments to observe before He gave us the Torah. Why? God gave us the commandments to observe for us to become betrothed, prepared, separated, and one for God before God brought us to Mount Sinai to marry us and to consummate us with His Holy Torah. Before we can get married, my friends, we must become betrothed, engaged. So, let us now understand the effect that getting engaged has on the marriage that follows. So, besides you can't do B before A, A has an impact on B. Getting engaged has an impact on marriage. On marriage. Let's see. I mentioned earlier the mystical teaching that the betrothal process of commandment observance is of the external encompassing light, while the marriage process of Torah study is of the internal permeating light. We can see this practically as that the hand that dons the tefillin or the hand that lights the Shabbos candles do not experience any change or transformation. On the other hand, the brain that studies Torah creates new neuron connections and the mind that studies the Torah transforms its paradigm of reality and purpose. Thus, Torah study is obviously internalized, while commandment observance is not. However, let us go back to the law of what constitutes a betrothal. I share with you that a betrothal takes place through the groom giving the bride money or monetary value 
with which she can buy life-sustaining food. Thus, betrothal needs to be a process of giving life sustenance, which is an internal transmission and not just an external transmission. So too, the verse clearly states concerning commandment observance, you shall observe my statutes my, and my ordinances, which a man shall do and live by them. Legally, this means that preserving life overrules the commandments other than the three commandments of murder, adultery, and idolatry. If someone tells you to commit murder or he will kill you, we must let ourselves be killed. However, all other commandments, for example, driving to the hospital on Shabbat to save a life is not only permissible, but is obligatory. This is the legal ramification of those words where God doesn't just say, you will observe, but he says, and you shall live by them, not die by them. Mystically, the words and live by them mean that commandment observance provides life to its performer. Thus we see that in essence the betrothal process of commandment observance is not only the external encompassing light to separate and prepare us for the internal permeating light, but it also in itself has hidden within the life-sustaining internal permeating light of a marriage relationship. However, this reveals itself not during the betrothal engagement stage, but in the marital stage. Now we can understand why the Targum defines the locked garden not just as a human garden of human pleasures, but as God's garden of Eden, of God's pleasure. The power and necessity of having an engagement in which we separate ourselves from foreign thoughts, speech, and actions, and of foreign pleasures, comes from God imbuing us with the power and experience of His Garden of Eden, God pleasures. This is the secret of God's betrothal to us, in which God gives us from which we can buy life sustenance, meaning internal God's pleasure. It is the Garden of Eden gift of being able to appreciate a godly pleasure that empowers us to lock our garden and give the key only to God. In closing, let us see what the spiritual understanding of God's betrothal and marriage process to us teaches us about how to evolve from being in a monogamous relationship to getting married. Let us start with the big question, why get married at all? Let us explore this question a little deeper. Why is it that absolute lovers in a monogamous relationship for years, who are absolutely madly in love with each other, get married and end up in a divorce within one to five years? This is not a hypothetical question, but a true occurrence which sadly happens far too often. The answer is that while they seem to act similarly, there is an infinite difference between being in a monogamous relationship and in being married. Even though we may not be consciously aware of it, not just something, but everything about each of the lovers change in marriage. They are no more two people who are madly in love with each other, but here, but have become one being. By the way, parenthetically speaking, I must share with you that I would love to explore what this does to someone who doesn't like him or herself all that much now that their lover has become one being with them. It's one thing for a person who doesn't love themselves to love someone else, but now when they become one, loving that someone else is loving themselves. Interesting to understand how that works psychologically. But let's get back to the lecture. This becoming of one being is not only about behaving monogamous with each other. As a matter of fact, 
Just as one can betray themselves, they can betray their spouse after they become one being. And just as one can always keep his word to a stranger, so too can a person remain monogamous to their lover throughout a lifetime of being unmarried lovers. Additionally, the marriage did not change a person from not taking their lover for granted to now taking their spouse for granted. A monogamous relationship of over a decade would have the lovers take each other for granted far more than a couple who were just introduced to each other five dates ago and are now newlyweds, so it isn't about taking the other for granted. So what does change within these two lovers through marriage? From a Jewish perspective, marriage changes the genetics of each of the lovers from being two halves into becoming one whole. However, as much as we believe in soulmates who were destined to be because they were from the onset of their existence two halves of one whole, nevertheless they were born as two individual souls, even open to marry any different other soul that they would choose. That's right. The great Arizal of Isaac Luria, the Kabbalist, speaks clearly of pe people marrying people who are not their soulmates. Thus, it is not to be taken for granted that the groom and bride are automatically genetically closed off to anyone other than each other. There needs to be an action of separation from all other options before this genetic change of becoming one being through marriage can take place. This is why we need to have the betrothal, the engagement, before we can get married. However, let us get more practical about how to move from being in a monogamous relationship into a marriage relationship. In practical terms, getting engaged to be married is the process of taking our foot out of the door so that the door can completely close behind us. This entails removing all other options from existence for us. Now, when I say all other options, I do not necessarily mean only the option of marrying someone else, but also the option of not getting married at all. People have been advised in long-term relationships, which isn't evolving into marriage, and they're told, why should he buy the cow if he is getting the milk and if he's getting the milk anyway? I don't disagree with this philosophy, and I don't see this as the milk referring to only having sexual relationships. For many a men and women as well, this would take them across the line from being in a monogamous relationship into proposing to get married. However, being bluntly direct with you, any man and any woman can get their intellectual, emotional, physical, and financial milk out there in the big world without buying the cow. You see, the bigger issue at stake here is to embrace letting everything about one's self go and to embrace becoming someone genetically new and different. You see, the man who isn't sure if this girl is the right one and or is suffering from FOMO, that even if he does see the possibility of this girl being the, the one he would live to the rest of his life with, however, he fears that maybe someone else could come along who if only he had held out a bit longer, then he would have much rather married this new woman that formal issue is dealing with a personality trait of being wishy-washy and uncertainty. This, I say to you, is something that, if you choose to marry him, you will deal with for the rest of your life in all areas, from buying a house, car, to choosing a permanent career. The same goes for the relationship in which the woman has the personality trait of uncertainty. So we're not talking about that here. What are we talking about? 
the deeper issue is not the uncertainty of who a person wants to spend the rest of their life with, in as much as the issue is if a person is willing to let his whole self die, and then to be completely reborn as a half of one whole. Getting engaged to be married is precisely the decision to let the whole you die, preparing you to be born now as a half of one whole, the whole that will now exist between you and the person you marry. Other than sounding dramatic, what does letting the whole you die mean? What the Rebbe is teaching us here is that there are two steps in the engagement process. Stop being just you, which is the separation, preparation, and death of the only you who you ever knew, and be begin being someone new. We spent a lot of time already on explaining step one. Let us passionately focus on step two. The Rebbe explained the concept that mitzvot observance, which represents the betrothal, is about you shall observe my statutes and my ordinances, which a man shall do and live by them. And that betrothal comes about through an internal transmission of buying self-sustenance. We explain this as our experience as our experiencing God's Garden of Eden of divine pleasure and not just our human garden of human pleasure. Asking of ourselves if we are willing to die will obviously be answered with a resounding no. Thus the experience that we need to produce within ourselves and to help create for our lover is the amazing pleasure of becoming but a half of an unprecedented and far greater one whole than we have ever experienced as a single person. Friends, we cannot stop at this point of the lecture because if we do, we have but created unuseful abstract poetry. Let us bravely, honestly move forward. How does one create within themselves and for their lover this amazing pleasure of being but a half of one whole? The answer is by honestly asking up one ourselves. What is it that I don't and cannot ever have in being a single whole me that I could have only in being but a half of one whole with another? This is the depths of the question I started the lecture with. Why get married? What only the oneness of marriage offers us, which the most passionate monogamous lover's relationship cannot offer us, is unconditional love, unconditional caring, and unconditional team life. God says to exchange them, referring to the Jewish people, to exchange them for another nation is impossible. The depths of all the Jewish suffering throughout our history is the greatest testimony of this. God cannot and will not let us go because God married us and now God and we have become but a half of one whole with each other. Thus, the practical way of getting engaged to be married is to truthfully and wholesomely allow ourselves to open up to receive being unconditionally loved, unconditional cared for, and to have an unconditional team life.
and to also give unconditional love, unconditional caring, and unconditional team life, action by action, moment by moment. What it takes is to offer to our significant other the safety to open themselves up to receive being unconditionally loved, unconditionally cared for, and to have an unconditional team life. Friends, modernity offers growth and growth comes with challenges. Judaism offers timeless divine solutions. Here at the Jewish mind is where modernity meets Judaism.